I first heard of the coding school 42, it sounded almost like a hoax. Tuition is absolutely free, for one thing, and some students even get free lodging in the dorms. The catch is that to get a slot, you have to go through an intense admissions process that involves a month-long coding challenge. For four weeks, applicants have to show up at one of the institution's campuses and work day and night on problems. Some even bring along air mattresses so they can get in as much time as possible. They call the coding challenge the piscine, or swimming pool, because students are thrown into the deep end. This unusual school started in Paris in 2013. It's the passion project of French telecom billionaire Xavier Neal, who donated $100 million to the effort. And it opened an offshoot in the U.S. last year, just outside of Silicon Valley, with the ambitious goal of teaching 10,000 students in the next five years. A promotional video on the site has endorsements from famous entrepreneurs, including Evan Spiegel, co-founder of Snapchat, and Stuart Butterfield, co-founder and CEO of Slack. If you're wondering why it's called 42, that's a reference to the comic sci-fi novel Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And if you know the book, you'll remember that that's the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So it's not just the admissions process that's unusual at 42. The curriculum is project-based, and it's focused on peer learning, meaning there are zero professors. There's a help desk, but apparently a handmade sign there reads, If you have a question, Google it. If you still have a question ask your neighbor. I'm Jeff Young, and for this week's Ed Surge on Air podcast, I sat down with Brittany Beer, the chief operating officer of 42's U.S. campus. She has a unique perspective on its model, since she went through the program in Paris as a student before becoming an administrator for the effort. I was curious to hear how it works and whether there are any lessons for traditional colleges. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm here with Brittany Beer, uh, Chief Operating Officer for 42 USA, uh, a coding school with a highly unusual price tag, which is absolutely free. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much. The sort of surprising thing when I was reading about 42 <laughs> was there's, you know, no professors. Yeah. Now, that's well, a that's an element that even a MOOC has a professor for 100,000 people. There's one professor. Exactly. What? How do you take the professor out? So the idea behind peer-to-peer was that rather than having the vertical transmission of knowledge where there's one person uh, that's going to be lecturing to you, the idea is that they're going to learn in a horizontal fashion. These are the Uh, students. So peer-to-peer is the students being peers to each other. Exactly. So the students are learning and teaching. The idea is that students... there are many students that learn much more effectively by being able to uh, digest the information and then teach each other. Mm. Uh, so sometimes they're going to make mistakes, but they're also going to be learning from those mistakes and they're able to kind of give each other checks and balances. Uh, so that's really important in uh, this learning environment with them learning by doing. It's just like when we learned how to walk or talk, uh, they're learning from each other, they're observing, and they're actually doing things hands-on. Let's go back to when you were a student. I, I guess I really want to picture what that what that looks like. Give me a give me a moment where you're you're you've passed through the piscine. You've you've you're you're in. You're entered. You're a student. Um, and how how does that look? Like what is it? Where 
just give me a thing you learned where you're, so you're sitting at the computer, you're like looking at MOOCs or you're tapping the person next to you to ask a question. Like when, when are you getting the new information? So it's basically all of what you've described and then some. So anything that we do really uh, is helping us move forward and advance uh, on the project. So be it that you're looking at different tutorials online, be it that you're just looking up random theories that you think might be interesting uh, to implement into your program, be it talking to a person over coffee, uh, all of those experiences are valid and helps you to advance. Uh, So Typically, what my day would look like was go in, look at the subject, and then just try and start picking apart the subject for different ideas, doing a bunch of research online, and then maybe talking with the person that's to my right, talking to the person that's to my left, figuring out what they're doing as well, what the kind of ideas that they have, how they interpreted the subject. Are you on a team of students for something then at that point or, or no? Um, not necessarily. Most of the projects are individual. We do have some group projects, but uh, essentially what wound up happening for me and for many students is that the people that you go through the scene with wind up being kind of your friends. Uh, all so you don't come in with no knowledge. You've had a month with these people. Exactly. So we have all kind of bonded over the fact that we were all trying to uh, conquer the same dragons uh, all throughout the peace scene. And so then you wind up working together. And so when you get stuck on something, you can turn to that person, uh, see what it is they're doing, maybe how they uh, might have uh, gone through the problem and how they see it. And that gives you also a new perspective. And so maybe it can change your point of view and how you might go about that to uh, find a better solution. Give me an example of a project. Okay, so one of the first projects that students do would be to recode uh, parts of the C library. So essentially, uh, when you learn a programming language, there's a lot of different functions that already exist. And so you can just, uh, if you need to do a certain function, you can just say, okay, I know where that function does, so I'm just going to copy it and paste it, and it'll do what it is I want it to do. What we ask our students to do is to recode those functions that they normally would have just been able to copy and paste and actually think about what it is those uh, those functions are doing with the computer. Uh, so that's what our students start off with. And then it goes into more complicated things such as redoing the entire command shell uh, that they are going to be typing the commands in as well. So this is a computer science. This is not a light curriculum at all. No. But you're really all. thrown into the sea. You're thrown into the... <laughs> water to swim. Exactly. <laughs> and so how long is it? You said three to five years. Yes. So it's three to five years based on uh, the students and how quickly they move through the projects. Because the projects do not have deadlines, uh, the student can take the time that they need to learn the material. And what do you get at the end? Is there? It's not an accredited institution. No, it is not. So what we give them at the end is a certificate of completion uh, that they have. Suitable for framing. And in addition to that, they also, all the projects that they worked on at 42 are their personal property. So they can use that for their portfolio or uh, many of our students have used that as their springboard to create their own startup. Okay, so... I actually got to ask the president of Harvard once yes. on an interview why they don't go tuition free. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the argument is that they, to stay strong, to stay the position they are and to give the education that they're known for, that they have to keep 
this endowment big mm-hmm. that they can't just spend it down and they have to therefore have tuition and so their their goal is to find a fair way and they're to be fair harvard's um you know the way they do it a lot of people are there for free or virtually free and then a lot of people that have means are paying quite a bit of money yeah so so they th- this is the this is the sort of hack right as you try to you try to make it so that you're looking at what people can afford and have mm. a have a, a system that um, can let that can let people in that way. That's the argument. But for you, even if you start with a hundred million, which is a lot of money, yeah. How do you not? How do you create an endowment or whatever the structure is that that can be sustainable? Uh, so currently, right now, we're focused on getting everything started up. And in Paris, right now, they're con- now starting to look at different models for how to make that more sustainable. Uh, so in France, they can benefit from there is what's called a tax d'apprentissage. So it is a tax which companies must pay uh, if they have an intern. Hmm. Uh, and so they can choose what school to give that to. So that's something uh, that the French campus can benefit from as far as revenue goes. Uh, with the United States, we will currently look at, uh, we'll, we will be looking at different options here in the next few years uh, once we get everything up and going and see what kind of possibilities we have here in the United States. For some sort of subsidy or grant or, I mean, you're looking for people to support it. Perhaps. Uh, right now, we're just open to all options, and we're primarily focused at this point simply on uh, getting the school started. I mean, we just opened up in May is when we started a- accepting applications. So uh, at this point, we're just focused on our students. It just gives new new meaning to this Silicon Valley thing about just grow and don't worry about money. And, exactly. And, <laughs> but you literally don't worry about a business model. You are giving it all away. Mm. Um, of course, you don't have to hire any faculty. Is there no one? How does this not become like a Lord of the Flies for college? Uh, wh- you know, who's who's in charge? Uh, so I'm in charge, actually. <laughs> but uh, I also have a great... So you're the one person in this hundreds of people <laughs> warehouse. Uh, not quite. I actually have a really great team. So we are about uh, seven. Well, no, actually, we just had one that joined us on Saturday. So we're at eight right now. Uh, and we'll have two more who will be joining us soon. And then we also have a team that's in the kitchen as well. Uh, and you're not a volunteer. You are paid. No, I am paid, yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, but the, uh, the students, it really is. I mean, there's no one that comes up and says, like, good morning, class. No. We are starting our day. Proceed, you know, don't don't uh, get distracted. Well, we do have uh, us as staff members. We kind of walk around from time to time, checking people out, making sure that uh, they're doing all right. We have Jamie also, who is our corporate relations manager, who is constantly going by. I think she knows all of our students' names by heart. And how uh, many students <laughs> in the U.S. right now? So right now we have 250, and we have a little more than 100, which will be joining us at the start of the school year. This and they all fit in this one facility in Silicon Valley? Yes, we have uh, 1,024 working stations uh, for <laughs> students. Uh, so we definitely have room to grow. We had our construction team that took a little bit uh, more time than they had planned to originally to finish the completed building. So uh-huh. uh, we're uh, looking at doing rolling admissions, uh, also to, to model the American school system. And we'll be bumping up those numbers here soon. And so the 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 software is guiding people 
to, to sort of stay on task, giving them their project uh, instructions. They're giving them their, their marching orders. Mm, more or less. What we have actually is what we call an intra. So it's a website where our students would go on that we've created. Um, there they'll find the different projects that we have. They can pick which project that they want to begin working on. And they'll find the subject. They'll also find a brief video uh, to describe what it is the project is and what it is it's looking for. And then they will go on to complete it. So what have you learned in the teaching, this unusual teaching, project-based, no professor? What what is there any lesson that a traditional college because you went to a traditional college in the U.S. you know Mm -hmm. the drill yes which which college again (laughs) so I went to Cal State University in Monterey Bay Cal State University Monterey Bay you you probably had some lectures Mm -hmm. you probably had some probably a mix of of seminars and all that what advice or lesson do you have out of this unusual model of forty two that a college say professor or somebody listening to this podcast could could take away so I think that. there's so many different ways that we can learn. So some individuals do well when they can hear a professor speak and they can go then and try and replicate that information. But a lot of individuals, they need to see something physically in front of them and they need to actually work on something to learn it. So I think what uh, professors could maybe take away from this is also having a little bit of lecture, but a lot more hands-on approach to the material that it is they're, they're covering in class. Is it really because of this this ability to go online, the students can can just go find this stuff because of MOOCs, because of just the YouTube videos or, or Wikipedia? Is that what makes this possible? Well, it is in part what helps to make this possible. The thing is, is that all this information that the students are going to be learning in classes, it already exists, be it in books, be it online, uh, be it via human resources. And so what they need to do is just reach out and take that information and make it their own. Uh, So that's what we want to help train our students to do is that rather than relying on somebody to give them that information, they need to go out and take it for themselves and make it their own. And there's going to be a lot of people, though, who worry. I mean, we're, we just had this election mm-hmm. in this, you know, in the U.S., and there's this talk about fake news that, you know, the argument is that it might have influenced it. it how do you not, you know, have uh, that kind of, you know, professor, you know, for better or for worse, if you like lectures or not, professors are there to say, like, you're going down the wrong path. And that does, I'm sure that happens even in, you know, whatever subject, whether it's computer coding um, or, or kind of traditional um, subject matter at universities. So how do you prevent, you know, kind of the false information or going down dead ends mm-hmm. for your students? So I think students are always going to go down some dead ends. Uh, they're always going to find some bad information. But the end result is not going to be what it is they were originally searching for. So they may try something out, but it will be faulty. And that is something that they're going to learn from. That's part of their learning process is seeing that information, uh, trying to make it work, and then seeing that it doesn't work. And also, too, with the information that they can find from others that are around them, uh, that is the checks and balances that is going to help put them back on the right path and get them to the solution that they need to find. And... Do you feel like this could, this is the thing I'm, I'm asking, I ask this question a lot of yeah. people involved with code schools of all kinds, because they're, people are really looking at code schools, whether they cost money or they're free, um, because they're an interesting model of, 
there's different shapes and sizes, but it's really saying start over. Don't think about what the universities do, but sort of think how can you get to an end mm. with today's technology. If you if you're starting there, um, I'm curious what does this work for anything but computer science though, right? Because computer science is so perfect <laughs> in that there is a right or wrong answer, so to speak, when you mm. try to build something and if it works or doesn't work, there's like a check, right? It either yeah. does or it doesn't. And, you know, it's nuanced, too. I mean, maybe this part works and this part doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's that's life, too, when you go into a software company. So um, and then you try to fix things that are broken. So this is a very unique set of skills, though, whereas there is just about every other profession that may not. I mean, does this work for anything else but computer science? Well, I think definitely computer science is the ideal model for this type of learning. Uh, can it be applied in other domains? I think it could be applied in other domains. Uh, however, I think people would really need to sit down and reflect on how they would be able to make that work for their specific uh, subject to be able to appropriate that in that sense. Uh, it's not some silver it's, bullet. It's not some silver bullet. And also, too, uh, one of the things that we also uh, strive to do with for is do partnerships with other schools, more traditional schools as well, so that uh, we can have our students go to that more traditional school environment, learn from that particular environment, come back and bring that information back to us, and then their students get to come to 42, bring that their information and learn from us as well, and bring that information back to their school. Uh, so I think that while other types of subjects could make this possible, uh, it's definitely something that would need to be adjusted for the different subjects that they want to make it happen in. So what is the, that said, you know, what then do you think drove your founder to do this? What's the, the thing that, you know, because starting, spending $100 million on something, you gotta, you gotta be passionate about it. What, what do you think drives that? What is the, the, the message or the point? So the message and the point, I think, is that uh, Xavier, he grew up in a fairly uh, decent family with a not so wealthy. Uh, and so the idea, I think, is that he wants to give back to the community and help make this type of education, a quality education, more accessible to individuals. But also, too, as somebody who is very much affected by the fact that if there are very competent developers available, I think that uh, that's definitely something that uh, we all need to consider is that in order to continue to innovate, to continue to move forward in the digital age, we're going to need more developers. Uh, so be it if it's going to benefit you specifically specifically, or maybe if uh, those individuals are going to go out and create new applications or new programs that are going to then help your employees to uh, make a better program. I think all of us can personally benefit from more individuals that are out there uh, who are innovating and who are creating new applications, new ideas. We're almost out of time, but I'm curious about kind of what's, what's the biggest challenge, even for 42 um, going forward? So I think the biggest challenge right now, uh, especially in the United States, is to let people know that this is actually for real. Um, oftentimes people hear, okay, free university, uh, free uh, <laughs> tuition, no student fees. Uh, they hear also too that there's no professors and some people will think that it's some sort of scam because uh, we have for very long had this notion that in order to have a quality education, it's got to have a high price tag. And the more you pay, the better it is. 
Uh, so I think that's one of the things that is going to be the biggest challenge for us is to break down the stereotype and break down this notion that a quality education inherently comes with a huge price tag. Yeah, I mean, the, then again, there there have been... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of... The, that is the question then also. And how do you measure whether it's quality? That's mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of professors in the audience are going to say, how do you... How do you test whether, sure, you're giving it away, so, mm-hmm. um, but there's time. People are giving their lives to, to enter exactly. your school for three to five years. How do you know this is any good? So how we know this is good is by the results, uh, by the students that go out and either start new companies or get hired in companies. And then those companies have come to tell us how much uh they're excited about what it is we're doing at 42, that our students are creating new uh, innovative ways to look at their programs. They're creating new solutions for their programs that the others uh, have not yet been able to create. And, and do they have people skills? I mean, not to be yeah. <laughs> rude, you, you seem like you do, but you know, the, the, if you're sitting in a computer all day, is it really just kind of up to you to figure everything out? No, not necessarily. So that's one of the great things about uh, peer-to-peer is that it also helps our students to develop more people skills. Uh, yeah, obviously, you have to learn how to defend your project to another student who may not necessarily agree with you without trying to strangle them. Uh, so there are reviews <laughs> There are reviews that have to be done among these peers. Exactly. Yes. You're not just working in isolation. So you're not just working in isolation. You have to communicate with your peers. That's essential in order to be able to advance uh, in the curriculum. So you have to have human interaction. You can't just sit in the cave with uh, your hoodie on and be by yourself all the time. You have to have human interaction. So I always tell our students, you know, you, if you come to 42, you either have to already have some communication skills or be at least willing to work on it because you're going to be required on a daily basis to talk amongst one another and to be able to converse in not only a professional manner, but in a polite manner uh, to get your point across. Is there a test at the end? No, there is not a test at, at the 42? end. At 42? How do you know when it's over? So you know when it's over um, because we have a gamification system. So with each of the projects, the students will get uh, a certain amount of experience points. With those experience points, they'll level up, kind of like in a game. Uh, so essentially, hmm. once students uh, near level 21, which is the end, they're going to go on a final internship. So they have two required internship periods that they have. And so that final internship period will be what it is that's their final, I guess you could say, capstone to validate the experience that they've had here at 42 uh, and finish. Well, thank you so much for telling the story and, and taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you so much for having me. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. If you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow Ed Surge on Twitter, at Ed Surge, or at Higher Ed Surge. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.